Okay, good morning, Sweetwater Christian Church, and good morning, everyone watching online, worshiping with us today. Thank you for joining. I'm Zane Goggins. I'm the pastor here at Sweetwater Christian. Uh, Let's take a moment and let's pray and ask the Lord to give us hearts that receive his love and word this morning. God, we come before you with humble hearts, our minds, our spirits. We ask that you would humble them and we ask that you would uh, give us uh, souls that receive your love and word with joy and gladness this morning. Pray that everything that I made up or comes from me would fall on deaf ears. Everything that you have to say to us this morning, I pray would be received with gladness and joy today. Bless us, keep us, make your face shine on us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we have come to the second of the four major events in Luke. We are almost done with the book of Luke. It's been 19 weeks now. Uh, Last week, we began Luke's crescendo uh, with what we traditionally call the triumphal entry, uh, otherwise known as God's personal visit. And uh, what God's personal visit showed us is that uh, Jesus and Rome operate in completely opposite ways. Uh, Rome in the New Testament was always a symbol or a metaphor for sin. It's always a symbol for the worst of humanity uh, because Rome operates like all empires tend to operate, which is through power, through force, through war. But Jesus doesn't do any of that. Jesus's kingdom is completely upside down. It's reversed. It's opposite of all of those things. Jesus's kingdom is the anti-Rome. And Jesus rules with peace, humility, and shalom, wholeness and completeness. And today, we'll look at possibly the most significant event in recorded history. Um, We'll continue to see uh, that we really do prefer our ways over the way of Jesus as well. Uh, But the cross is more uh, than just exposing the worst of humanity. Uh, The cross is something much more than that. It is the coronation ceremony of Jesus. Jesus is king today. And it's an event mixed with sorrow and joy, much like last week. Now, because the cross is such a significant event, not just in Christian faith, but also around the entire world, it's uh, hard to find one nice nine or seven verse passage to say, this is our text for this morning. Uh, So uh, I'll be reading a lot of scripture this morning, and we'll have to jump around a little bit. But if you turn to Luke 23, you'll be able to follow along just fine. So basically, Luke 23 is our text today. Uh, you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. There's Bibles in front of you, behind you, under you. Uh, you can take that one home if you don't have one, and you can email me if you want to learn how to read a Bible. So Luke 23, some quick, t- some quick context. Uh, we didn't go directly from the triumphal entry to the cross. Okay, that's not really how it works. Uh, some things do happen in between. We get the institution of the Lord's Supper, the sacrament of communion. We get Judas betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. We get Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane or on the Mount of Olives, as Luke says. 
And he prays for God to remove the cross from his near future. And then he is comforted by angels. Jesus gets arrested as Judas leads Rome to him. Peter denies ever knowing Jesus three times. Jesus gets mocked for being a prophet and he gets taken to the chief priests and he's accused of blasphemy. And all of this brings us to where we are today. He's been accused of blasphemy, something you get killed for. Uh, But the Jewish leaders don't actually have any power to execute Jesus. Uh, The Romans are the only ones who can actually do that. They're the ones who are actually in charge. Uh, So the Jews bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate. We met him last week. He's the governor of Judea. And he's the one in charge of the Roman way in Jerusalem. And so I'll be reading from the NRSV this morning, Luke 23, beginning in verse 1. Then the assembly rose as a body and brought Jesus before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man perverting our nation, forbidding us to pay taxes to the emperor, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. Then Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered, You say so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and to the crowds, I find no basis for an accusation against this man. But they were insistent and said, He stirs up the people by teaching throughout all of Judea, from Galilee, where he began began to this place. Pilate then called together the chief priests, verse 13, the leaders and the people, And he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was perverting the people. And here I have examined him in your presence and have not found this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he was sent back to us, for he was sent him back to us from him. Indeed, he has done nothing to deserve death. I will therefore have him flogged and release him. Then they all shouted together, away with this fellow, release Barabbas to us. This was a man who had been put in prison for an insurrection that had taken place in the city for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time they said to them, uh, he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I found in him no ground for the sentence of death. I will therefore have him flogged and then release him. But they kept urgently demanding with loud shouts that he should be crucified and their voices prevailed. So Pilate gave his verdict that their demand should be granted. He released the man that they asked for, the one who had been put in prison for an insurrection and murder, and he handed Jesus over as they wished. We'll stop there in the text for the moment before we get to the actual uh, event of the crucifixion. This is where uh, we get a little more elaboration on Luke's message from last week, how we choose our own way, we choose the way of Rome, the way of ourselves over the way of Jesus. This is the critical point. None of the officials find Jesus guilty of anything substantial, actually. 
Part of this was probably because they didn't think the optics of executing a high-profile Jew like Jesus would have been good during the Passover if they're expecting to squash any, any hints of a potential revolt against Rome. The optics just wouldn't look good that way. Um, but they also know that Jesus has a lot, of em- a lot of enemies, but he also has a lot of followers, people that he's healed, people that he's taught, he's prayed with, had meals with, delivered demons from. Jesus has backers. They don't want to execute him, at least not during Passover. The optics would not be good. And besides the optics of it, the Romans didn't care that he blasphemed. Uh, That's the Jews issue. The Romans don't care. They worship completely different gods. They don't care. So, Uh, But what they do care about is that one of the accusations against Jesus is that people are calling him a king. And the Romans care a lot about Caesar's reputation. Caesar is the emperor of Rome. You don't challenge Caesar's kingship. Uh, It's grounds for death. And that's why the chief priests bring Jesus to Pilate with the accusation that Jesus is perverting our nation. Uh, Another translation is that Jesus is misleading the people. And how is he doing that? Uh, The chief priests uh, said that he was misleading the people by telling them not to to pay taxes to Caesar and that Caesar isn't actually the king, but Jesus was saying that he is the king instead. This is what they Uh, accuse Jesus of because the Romans have the actual power here. Their words are playing to Rome's insecurities, but their hearts are telling on themselves. Their hearts are acknowledging who they really want to be the king, and it's not Jesus. And this plays out in a very blunt way. Uh, Ultimately, Pilate comes to the decision that the crowd really just wants blood They don't really want reason, due process. They don't really want a real trial. They've made their minds up about Jesus. And so what Pilate does is actually kind of a, maybe a smart little trick is he decides to offer them a choice that they would be crazy to make. And so Pilate decides to give the Jewish people a contrast, a choice He decides to call up a criminal. There's a bad criminal uh, and offer the Jewish people a choice that he doesn't think they're actually going to make. There's no way they'll let an actual criminal go and let Jesus be executed. And so he brings up this guy named Barabbas. And Barabbas is the exact opposite of Jesus in almost every way. He's a murderer. Uh, He probably murdered a Roman, maybe several Romans. And he holds the traditional view of the Messiah. He thinks the Messiah is a military figure who is supposed to kick Rome out of town by force, uh, which is why he is in prison. The NRSV, the NIV, and the ESV all say that Barabbas led an insurrection, or at least he participated in one. Hence, that's why he's in prison, probably awaiting execution himself. He's the opposite of Jesus, except in one way, his name. Your ESV, your NRSV, your NIV doesn't have Barabbas's full name in it, mostly out of tradition that dates back to origin in the 200s. 
But much older and more original transcripts of the book of Matthew, almost all scholars agree, show us that Barabbas actually does have a first name, and his first name is Jesus. Jesus actually is a really common uh, first century Jewish name. It's the equivalent of Josh. That's really what it is. We call it Jesus. Really, it's more like Josh, Yeshua. Uh, His first name, Josh, Jesus, Yeshua, means God's salvation. That's what Jesus' name means, God's salvation. And his last name, Barabbas, means son of the father. Bar is son, Abba or Abbas is father. So, Put it all together, you have God's salvation, the son of the father, leading an insurrection of violence against the the Romans. And this is the contrast Pilate hopes is just too obvious for everyone. He gives them a choice between the false Jesus of the insurrection, who embodies the ways of violence and sin, or the true Jesus, the prince of peace, who leads with shalom. The Jesus of peace or the Jesus that looks a lot more like them. Which one do you want? It is a choice. It is not a choice that is restricted to the first century. Pilate leaves it up to the crowd to make the obvious choice to free Jesus and reject the false Jesus. But the crowds tend to do wrong things. All crowds do Honestly, they tend to do untrue things. Crowds can represent the worst of humanity. Between the years 1841 and 1846, uh, there was a a Christian philosopher. uh, You may have heard of him as Soren Kierkegaard. He wrote a, a small book called The Crowd is Untruth. The Crowd is Untruth. It's a small book. You can read it in one afternoon. But in this little book, Kierkegaard writes down his observations on what crowds do to people. And what he notices about crowds is that they tend to take away personal responsibility by making uh, a personal decision just a fraction of the crowd's actions. What does that mean? It means that you can participate in something terrible as a group and not feel personally responsible for it because the crowd decided to do something. And when a crowd does something terrible, it becomes easier to justify. And that is exactly what is happening here. There's a terrible choice about to be made by the crowd. Each person giving up personal responsibility and allowing the crowd to think for itself as as its own organism almost. The book of Matthew even even says that Pilate himself washed his hands as he handed Jesus over to the the Jews as a a way to absolve his own personal uh, guilt in this situation, as a way of saying, this isn't on me, his blood's not on my hands. And together, the crowd can't help but choose its own way, the way of Caesar and Rome, the way of sin. And they choose the Jesus that looks more like themselves. The true Jesus is sentenced to death. The great sin of the world, as I said last week, is that we choose our own way rather than the way of Jesus to reconcile the world back to God. Sometimes we choose our own way and we still call it Jesus. 
The warning here from Luke is that if you start to notice that Jesus starts to look like you and your group more and more, if you notice that Jesus starts to agree with you and your group more and more, but he doesn't seem to be changing you, that's how you end up choosing a Barabbas and choosing your own way. Look at verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified Jesus there with the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And they cast lots to divide his clothing. And the people stood by watching, but the leaders scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he's the Messiah of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, then save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. And here is where true sorrow and true joy meet each other. The circumstances are terrible. Uh, But this is Jesus's official coronation ceremony. Uh, As of this moment, Jesus is the king. It's odd. Luke actually doesn't mention the crown of thorns. Uh, All the three other gospels actually mention a crown of thorns. Uh, But this is where Jesus subverts the way of Caesar by the way of peace. The son of God, God in the flesh, the incarnate one at this moment has initiated a new kingdom that does not bow down to violence, selfishness, or sin, but it is founded on forgiveness and peace. The anti-Rome is here now. And Jesus' first act as king comes in the form of a statement. And that statement is, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Caesar and Pilate would never say anything like that. When Jesus is king, his first edict is to forgive. When Jesus is king, sin is handled. When Jesus is king, mercy triumphs over judgment and every selfish thing you've ever done, are doing, or will do will come under the mercy of Jesus's pronouncement, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. The kingdom of God is founded on forgiveness. This is the greatest joy in the world that even though we choose our own way, even though we sin, even when we follow the crowd into untruth, even in the middle of murdering God, Jesus looks down from his throne as king of the world and pronounces, you are forgiven. This is the way of Jesus. This is how peace on earth is accomplished. In Jesus Christ on the cross, the sins of the world are forgiven. Joy to the world. 
The, the, the image of Christ on the cross is the depiction of the moment that your sins were forgiven and mercy came upon you. But in the story, this joy is quickly overshadowed by the horror of the situation. Uh, verse 44. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, crying with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and said, Certainly this man was innocent. And when all the crowds who had gathered there for this spectacle, then when they saw what had taken place, they returned home, beating their chests. But all of his acquaintances, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. So as I said, great joy, great sorrow, Even though they were forgiven, humanity chose its own way still. And as the crowd, we committed deicide. You've heard the term homicide. It's where you murder a homo sapien, a fellow human being. That is homicide. Uh, But what happened on the cross by the decision of the crowd was deicide, the murder of deity the murder of God, not just the murder of an innocent man, like the centurion says, but the murder of God who created all things, including his own killers. Like last week, if you're looking for an encouraging word this morning, I will give you one after service. But I think that in this moment, we have to try and grasp what this means. We are 2,000 years removed from this specific event And we are in the fortunate position uh, to have high literacy rates and we have Bibles and we know the end of the story. We know what happens next. We know what happens next week. And that's a good thing, but it can also cloud our sense of feeling the weight of this terrible thing that we've done. And Luke is trying to get us to feel the weight of shame and horror when an innocent person is put to death. The centurion, a Roman soldier, looks up to Jesus and he can't help but cry out to God, a God he doesn't even worship. He worships Caesar as God. He worships the Roman pantheon. He defies the guilty judgment of his own empire and he proclaims that Jesus was actually innocent. He has broken away from the crowd in this moment. He's finally recognized the truth of what happened. And the crowd itself that sentenced Jesus to death in the first place are now feeling the burden of their own personal responsibility for participating in the crowd of untruth. And Luke says that they go home beating their chests. Do you remember a few weeks ago, that image of someone beating their chests? The tax collector and the Pharisee, the tax collector who stood off in the corner, couldn't even look up to heaven to pray. He was beating his chest, right? Do you remember? It was the tax collector that went home justified. 
you got to picture this. The crowd is responsible for murder. And then Jesus proclaims forgiveness as he's being executed. And after the grisly murder, the same crowd takes the position that the tax collector took, contrite, feeling guilty, and feeling sorrow and shame for what they did. And because Jesus is merciful like the tax collector, they all go home justified, beating their chests. I think Luke added that little detail to remind us of this story. Nonetheless, they do go home ashamed. Ashamed that they took part in the crowd of untruth. And the women that Jesus does ministry with, they're they're always by his side. Through thick and thin, they financially support his ministry. They do ministry alongside him. They stood far off in disbelief at what they were seeing. The person that they've spent the last three years with, who was supposed to make everything right, is hanging dead on a Roman execution cross. Jesus has died. Next week, and really the next couple of weeks, won't be so heavy. Uh, Like every contrast in Luke, you're going to get two weeks of sorrow like we just had. And then we're going to have two weeks of victory and joy heading into the Advent season. Uh, Next week, we will turn our attention to the resurrection. But some things happen before the resurrection happens. Jesus is dead now, uh, and he'll be dead for three days. And a lot is actually going on in that time between Jesus just now dying and the actual resurrection. There's a lot of things happening, actually. And we will see what Jesus is up to in between the cross and the resurrection and what it means for the resurrection itself. But for right now, let's just pray and worship together. Father, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts that understand when we are following the crowd of untruth, not knowing what we're doing. Father, forgive us for our sins. I thank you that from the cross, you pronounced forgiveness for all of us. That we don't have to hold on to that anymore, but we can live with God eternally with you as our King. Father, we worship you. Jesus, we worship you as our King. We submit to your will, and we ask that you would form us and mold us into your image rather than uh, us forming you into our own image. Bless us and keep us. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Amen.